Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. We're a few miles apart today. Matt, where are you joining us from today? I'm in sunny Midland, Texas, seeing Ah. some customers. Hey, that's... You know, that's the most important thing is, you know, focusing on the clients and and doing what we got to do. And that means flying to Midland, shuffling your schedule around. Actually, it was funny because yesterday I was coming from Oklahoma City. You're flying to Midland. We somehow crossed paths in the airport. And yeah, just now things are opening up and here we are running around to different cities and doing what we do best. How was traveling for you yesterday? I mean, it's it was pretty easy. Well, I was here last week too. So I would say it was just different airline, different airport, all going to and from Midland. But, you know, it was fine. I have no complaints. I can't wait for them to lift the mask order for airplanes and airports just because it seems a little worn out by now, but mm-hmm. I can handle it. Yeah. If I was willing to bet, I feel like it'll stick around for a while, but either way, it's it's nice to be able to travel and, and fly. And, and I went into a Starbucks this morning and wasn't required to wear a mask. And so when Starbucks lifts their mask mandate, I feel like, you know, it's really getting It's for real. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, as much as we'd like to talk about masks and, and, you know, all this COVID stuff that we're trying to look past a topic that, you know, I think we, we need to revisit Matt and focus on is clear brine fluids. Uh, It's something that's been a topic of discussion. And I know there's certain customers out there and sort of just curiosity as to, you know, what we can use it for. And I thought it'd be good. Actually, it was your idea to dive into it a little bit and kind of give the listeners sort of some in-depth ideas and thoughts and things to consider regarding clear brine fluids. What do you think? I think it's good. You know, we actually got a question during the freeze. I was like, oh, this would be a good one about freezing points and brines. And then it was like, Justin, you said, let's just talk about brines in general. That's a, a healthy topic. I know we've gotten into it before, but Let's revisit it. So here we are. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get started. And for the listeners who may have not heard the first episode that we discussed some clear brine fluid, what is it at the very fundamental level? What is a brine fluid? So think of it as simple as I'm putting salt together with water, but keep in mind that there's a lot of different kinds of salts. So normally we think of table salt like sodium chloride, and you can certainly make sodium chloride brine, but I think in the oil field, we use a lot of calcium chloride. We use a lot of potassium chloride. And then it goes from there. So there's a lot of different brines and there's a lot of different salts that can go into those brines. And so just kind of that's at its most, you know, fundamental concept. And when we have salt and water, guess what? Salt goes into solution. So we get solids free fluids. They can weigh more than water and frequently, I mean, they do weigh more than water and different kinds of salts can get you different densities. So if you think about a completion fluid, you know, application, it may be that I want, you know, a solids free fluid, because if I put weighted up with Bayrite to kill a well or control the well while I'm installing the completion, those solids could plug the production versus a clear brine fluid, which should stay clear and not affect anything, assuming it's compatible. But then, you know, the other thing, and our Canadian brethren to the North can certainly testify to this, that 
you know, clear brine fluids are used a lot in the drilling world for solids free, high ROP type applications. You just have to keep the solids out, which requires some some dewatering. But that's sort of where it all begins and, and how it fits into what we do. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits to clear blind fluids. And I mean, we can certainly dive into it as to why, but before we get there, what types of brines are there? Because, you know, there's, I think people in the drilling world and especially, you know, unconventional is where, you know, it's either oil-based mud or very, like some very simple type of fluids. And then especially out in West Texas, anyone who's drilled out there, if you were to give them a pop quiz, what kind of fluid you use, they typically say, produce brine in the intermediate and oil-based in the lateral. You know, that's the pretty typical way to go about it, but there's, there's different types of brines. And the reason everyone uses the regular produced brine or sodium chloride brine out in West Texas is it's kind of gives you that ideal mud weight, which, you know, anything up to 10 pounds is what they use out there. But there's a lot more types of brines that we can use. Like you mentioned completions, you'd certainly need more than 10 pounds most often in, in a completions environment, but can you describe the different types of brines that we may come across just, you know, in general? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go through kind of the most common and then I'll sort of acknowledge a few of the ones you, we should say they exist, but they don't really get used. So even on the, you know, on the frac side, we might use 3% KCL or something and there. We're using salt water, but we've talked about inhibition. So just having a little bit of potassium, which will actually, you know, limit shale swelling. Then on, you know, so KCL, but KCL can go up to about 9.7, but we use that quite a bit. Sodium chloride, as you mentioned, is kind of the standard go-to. And then calcium chloride is also readily available and it's cheap. And so that's, you know, the only thing with, you know, we call the monovalence. So like the, the potassiums, the sodiums, they'll work well with things like xanthan gum, right? So they're viscosifiers, starches, lots of that, that sort of thing. When I get into the divalence, the calcium chlorides and calcium bromides and stuff like that. Additives don't like them as much. And so there's a little bit of, you have to use different additives. And sometimes that can be a little bit tricky because they're not as readily off the shelf. So we have calcium chloride, then kind of, you know, bromide. So like sodium bromide, calcium bromide, you know, calcium bromide's a usually a completion niche. Although I have made use as an internal, internal phase for an oil-based mud before. And then zinc bromide, if you want to get really heavy, and I'll, we'll run through the densities here in a minute. But then formates, you hear a lot about formates. I think they have, they have strong marketing, we'll put it that way. So you got sodium formate, potassium formate, and then cesium formate is, is pretty exotic. But you know the nice thing when you hear about those is there's no chlorides in those, which from an environmental perspective can be attractive. And then kind of what I'd call sort of the others... Ammonium chloride has been used and it's, it's actually pretty inhibitive. It doesn't get you a very high density, but the problem is if you let the pH, if you run the pH up too high from a H2S or corrosion mitigation perspective, it can release ammonia, which is not a thing we like to do. You know, we've talked a little bit about nitrates and tracers, but nitrate brines are, are certainly out there and available. Acetates, these are a lot of times used as chloride-free options, sulfates, and even like there's potassium carbonate brine out there. The reason we don't like potassium carbonate as a brine or don't, you don't see it very much is it precipitates lots of things out. And so it's, it's not as we'll say that's one of those it exists, but you don't see it very often. So there are definitely more, they get more expensive to get more exotic, but 
that's sort of a comprehensive list. I would think if, if anybody tried to bring anything up in the oil field, I've, I've probably covered it. Yeah, no, that, that's, I mean, a wide spectrum. And I'm sure most of the folks out there have never had laid their hands on probably 95% of these, but to know they exist is, is important. And, you know, on the completion side, I'm sure most, you know, a lot of these have been touched on, but you know, on the drilling side, you know, at least from my experience, you know, it's been like the ones you initially listed, the potassium chloride, sodium chloride, calcium chloride, of course, in oil-based mud, calcium chloride is really, you know, used quite often, but to know there's a ton out there is important. And so if, if we were moving on and again, with regards to drilling, there's specific reasons and benefits as to why one would choose a brine. Can you run through that? Yeah. I mean, I think on the drilling side, uh, we, we sort of mentioned inhibition and that sort of thing, but I think, you know, density would be a big focus. As you mentioned, you know, sodium chloride cover, it goes up to about 10 pounds per gallon, which that covers a lot of our intermediate well scenarios out in the Permian basin. But let's say I want to drill, you know, a wolf camp D or something, you know, if I need to get up to 12 or 13 pounds, my options are, are quite a bit more limited. And so just, you know, a quick rundown, you know, uh, so like potassium chloride gets you about nine, seven sodium chloride gets you about 10 pounds. Sodium formate will go up to about 11. Calcium chloride will go up to about 11.6 pound per gallon. Sodium bromide is about 12.5. Potassium formate, 13.1. Calcium bromide, 14.2. Cesium formate, which is really, really rare, as I mentioned, will go up to about 18.3. And, and zinc bromide can go up to about 19.2. But with all that density, the reason you don't see those more exotic ones very often is they're expensive. The cost goes up tremendously as you get into the density. And so, you know, you're talking about a couple hundred bucks a barrel all the way up to a few thousand dollars a barrel on some of the heavier ones. And so, you know, that's obviously a huge factor with what you're going to use or if you're going to use them at all. So that's certainly something to keep in mind. And then, you know, for example, formates, you know, one of the reasons you don't see formates used a lot in the Gulf of Mexico besides cost is they're just not readily available when these are heavy and expensive brines, you try and recycle them. And so if you want to sell them back to somebody and they're sitting on a bunch of calcium bromide, they'd rather take calcium bromide. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that can be a big driver on, on your selection brines that are compatible with one another. So for example, you can mix two brines together and actually have salt fall out, which would lose your density and create other problems. So we don't want to do that. And I, th I think I'd mentioned, you know, on the, you know, the environmental side, trying to go chloride free, those kinds of things. Zinc bromide is a marine hazard. We usually try and stay away from zinc, but it's one of the only cost-effective options at really high density. And then, you know, some of these are a little more friendly with corrosion. So that's kind of the breakdown. I mean, there's, there's probably more I'm missing, but, you know, you've got a ton of options and then those options get a lot narrower when you start thinking about density, cost, and a few of these other factors. Right. There's been, you know, just chatter about, hey, you know, what if we replaced oil based mud with, you know, some form of brine? And, and then when you start crunching the numbers, anything over, you know, a lot of times over that calcium chloride threshold, it starts to ramp up your cost, which then the economics oftentimes don't make sense. So there's a lot of, a lot of considerations when you need to account for, you know, densities and, and lower, deeper targets. Although you may drill faster, there's a lot that goes into it, but to know you have the options is always good. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, the brine in itself with regards to, you know, because most of the time, especially in West Texas, you can bring out 
already blended a brine or a produced brine. So it already has the properties. There's no mixing required. It already has the density. It fluctuates a little bit just depending on whether that's the, you know, the content of the salt or maybe some other, I'm forgetting the word now, but like you may, it may have magnesium. It may have just different forms of properties to fluctuate. But anyway, you can also add dry powder to, you can, you can make your own brine essentially from a, say a fresh water and you can add brine. And, you know, a lot of times, I mean, you can't, like a potassium chloride, you typically build a potassium chloride, calcium chloride. You know, sometimes you have a bunch of calcium chloride on location, you can build it. Or a lot of times that gets hauled out. I think at our plant, we have pre-mixed calcium chloride to when we build oil base mud. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, dry versus liquid and, and maybe in some cases why you'd use one versus the other or some of the limitations? Yeah. So, I mean, some of it, it depends on what you need and cost. So like liquids are great because think about how, you know, there's no handling, right? I don't, I don't have to, I pump it. I don't need somebody to carry a sack. Think of it like pneumatically conveying bay right versus trying to cut sacks to wait up, right? It's night and day as far as convenience goes. Right. But if you need to make minute adjustments, you know, for example, with KCL, I normally don't need a huge liquor of KCL. I may only want three, three or 5% KCL. So why would I ship all of that liquid and pay to store and transport something that has a very small amount? I might take the dry. The other part of it is, you know, some of these are only available as liquids. Many of them are originally available as liquids. So when they mine these things, they circulate fluid downhole, obviously the, you know, circulate water. It basically draws a salt into solution. It comes to surface as a liquid, and then it takes a lot of energy to dry it out and, you know, have salt crystals that you put in a bag. Yeah. And so that adds costs. So for example, like calcium bromide, you can get it in dry sack material, but it's much, much cheaper as a liquid for that very reason. And it's manufactured through a chemical reaction. So it's a little different generally, or it's, it's cleaned up at least we put it that way. But anyways, the point is that, you know, sometimes a dry can cost considerably more. Sometimes it makes sense to have dry. So like, you know, zinc bromide, you can't get that dry. Cesium formate, that's not going to be dry. You can get some of these things as dry salts in the lower densities, but remember they're really like water too, right? So Mm -hmm. I remember we had a customer that made us send out sacks of sodium bromide. And the problem is it doesn't take very long for them to pull water from the air around you and become hard as a rock. And yeah, (laughs) these were like $200 a sack rocks. So then you say, okay, you know, I've got to rip off the sacks. I got to get a grinder. Like I I can't just trash it. And, you know, it's too expensive to do that. So it's just a very frustrating thing, but I will say mixing the dry. One of the, one of the fun things with that is it's like calcium chloride and calcium bromide are exothermic. So if you ever, you know, if you ever go in the mud lab and they have some calcium chloride sitting around, have somebody throw it some water. And if you, you know, hold the, hold the side of the jar, the, the jar get hot. Yeah. I've actually used that sometimes to heat up brines and help polymer yield, for example. Potassium chloride is endothermic, which means you throw in potassium chloride and the brine actually gets cold. Those are fun little things to do in the lab. Like, you know, those are, we should probably put those in our customer schools because it's like science is cool. <laughs> it's like one of those things when you're in elementary school or even high school doing fun stuff in the lab you know, showing all your buddies, all these cool tricks. Yeah. It definitely gives you that lab street credit as we all, as we're all thriving for, you know? Absolutely. Especially yeah. me. <laughs> Matt needs all the credit he can get. So let's move on to 
Well, actually, between dry versus liquid, liquid blends with regards to TCT. Can you touch on that? Yeah, and we should dive into TCT here. We'll dive into that here shortly, or maybe I'll jump into it. But so the thing is, you know, these brines have different freezing temperatures. And so you might have a liquid that basically the salt will come out if it gets too cold. And so in Europe or in Canada, you might only be able to get 11.3 calcium chloride, even though I said, oh, well, you can get it. It can go as heavy as 11.6. Well, that's 11.6 at like 70 degrees Fahrenheit, not at however cold it can get pretty common in Canada, right? And so 11.3 offers a safer window. So if you're buying a liquid, you know, a liquid liquor, as we call it, or a spike brine, it may not be as heavy in colder areas. And then it may be heavier in warmer areas like the Gulf of Mexico, where you have, you know, 11.6 or even 11.8 brine. So that is an important point. And, you know, kind of jumping ahead on my outline and I made my outline and as clearly out of order as I judge what I've written, (laughs) (laughs) you know, with TCT, it's called true crystallization temperature. And basically, if you think about the, if you think about a brine or, you know, I use this example and I don't know if anybody actually knows what I'm talking about, but you start adding some, let's say you start adding some sugar to tea, right? Tea's hot, like hot tea. You add some sugar, sweeten it up, but then you walk away and your cup gets cold. And later on, you see some, some sugar crystals at the bottom of the cup. Well, basically the deal is that you've oversaturated it, right? You, only, you know, only so much can go into solution. And we know that things are more soluble at higher temperatures. So if we kind of try and put all that together, I start adding salt. And when I'm watching this true crystallization temperature, I'll see at my lower densities, starting with water, my freezing point will actually go down. So I'll go from 32 F, keep adding salt, keep adding salt, keep adding salt. But then what will happen is the heavier you get or the higher chloride or the the higher salt content you get, you're actually going to see the freezing point start to come back up again. And that, that point of inflection is called the eutectic point. But basically what happens is to the left of that curve, the salt is actually limiting my freezing point. To the right of that, it's so cold that the salt would start falling out because I've got so much more salt. So crystallization can either be ice crystals forming or salt crystals forming. But either way, I'm going to have a problem. So this was actually what sort of inspired this is I got a call during the, you know, in anticipation of the big freeze where one of our account managers said, hey, you know, we're just looking at what we need to do to be prepared for the freeze. And we were looking at this TCT curve and we wanted to understand why at these higher densities, the freezing point goes up. And so that was sort of, it was, well, actually that salt coming out versus, you know, the other side of it. Right. Right. So, and even just, you know, to finish that thought, you can actually under high pressure conditions, you can actually do this the same way. And if you think about it, brine compresses. So there's less salt per unit volume of water. You can actually have crystallization happen that way. That's called the PCT, which normally that's like an offshore thing. Think about cold temperatures at your mud line and think about testing BOPs at 15,000 PSI. Right. You don't want your brine falling apart. (laughs) So that becomes a, a more important thing under those conditions. So that's one really important property. We've already kind of talked about density. The only thing I really wanted to highlight was, you know, out in the field here, we might, you know, probably measure our brine density with a mud balance. No big deal, right? 
But if you're trying to get a really precise density, you'll actually use what's called a hydrometer, which you may have used that for a base oil or some other solids free fluid. Or if you've been to a brewery or a distillery, you'll see they use it to actually see how much alcohol they've distilled. But it's basically like a glass tube with a weight on the bottom of it. And it sort of balances in a graduated cylinder of fluid. And wherever the fluid line is relative to where the tube is floating, there's a number. And that number is your density. And when you're using like heavy brines for API calculations, you actually have to do a temperature correction. So you're always correcting it to 70 degrees, which is really annoying because most of the hydrometers are set to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's like lots of math and confusion, but it's just something to be aware of. And they're all made out of glass. So almost every hydrometer set is missing the hydrometer you need because somebody broke it. Mm. Yeah. Fun fact. Engineers and especially anyone on a rig is good at breaking stuff. Yeah. I mean, like it's the worst possible thing for a rig, right? Think of a a fragile glass tube where that needs to float in something without falling out of it. Yeah. It's just, they were not designed for the oil field, (laughs) but we still need them. And in the lab, I'm sure they're extremely valuable. Certainly. Yeah. But so what other properties or things we need to consider when, you know, measuring clear brine? Cause you know, you, you typically think, okay, well, you know, it's just a water. It's like, kind of like if you're drilling with say fresh water, it's like you, as long as the mud weight's around eight, three, you're pretty much good to go. And your viscosity is 32. Like there's nothing else to consider, maybe some hardness and pH, but you know, what else do we typically look at when we're using brines? So, I mean, uh, some of the tables will actually have water activity, which is something we talk a lot more about, you know, when we're drilling like water phase salinity and that sort of thing. But with respect to water activity, values, just is there available water or not? Sometimes that can, I mean, that can be good for inhibition if there's less water available, but at the same time, you know, additives might not yield. And then, you know, kind of on the general, you know, stuff that I would measure or keep an eye on, you know, dissolved oxygen is a very common one, just because if you have a lot of dissolved oxygen, that's a corrosion aggravator, if you will, or corrosion factor. pH Some of these brines, you can't actually raise their pH up. You know, I mentioned ammonium chloride, but zinc bromide, some of these other ones have inherently low pH. And so you try and get it in a better range for corrosion, but you're sort of limited on what you can do. Other things, so like total suspended solids on the drilling side, solids are, if we're drilling with a clear brine fluid, total suspended solids are a nightmare because it only takes like 1% to not only aggravate corrosion tremendously, but really slow your ROP, create torque issues, that sort of thing. And total suspended solids is, you know, a lot of times if you're on the completion side, you remember measuring it with, you basically put a fluid in a centrifuge and spin it and it shows you a percentage. Total dissolved solids or basically how much stuff is in solution is, you know, via a probe. And then turbidity or, or brine clarity, which is in NTUs. And that's just another measure, but anything that makes darkens the fluid messes that up. I see. But on a drilling rig, mud engineers, I mean, we're not typically measuring TDS, TSS, and total suspended, total dissolved turbidity. These are more lab-related tests, correct? Well, it's there's a chance you might be running them in the field, but most of these are, are probes. Total suspended solids... I don't think there is one, but everything else is basically like a probe you can hang in a tank. It's really pretty straightforward. And you can trend those things. They're, you know, there's not a lot you measure when you're, when you're testing for brine, right? These are just all of the above, if you will. And so 
Mm-hmm. You're right. Some of those like total suspended solids and turbidity are very common on the completion side. However, you could certainly see them under other circumstances. Gotcha. Yeah. So with regards to additives, you know, there's just like any drilling fluid, we add chemicals and, and different products to adjust different properties, account for different things. Let's talk about what we typically add to a brine. So, I mean, lubricants are probably, if we're talking about drilling, if we're talking about anything, you might be adding a lubricant just because some of these brines have a little bit of inherent viscosity and offer some lubricity. They typically tend to be the higher density ones, but in general, we're looking for some lubricity that, and basically you're looking for something that's compatible with that brine and works. You know, corrosion inhibitors, I think we've talked a lot about corrosion in the past, but you think about all the mechanisms. So maybe a biocide, maybe an oxygen scavenger, a filmer, like, you know, something to coat metal tubulars to limit that formation. Scale inhibitors can also kind of fall under that category. There's sort of a broad family there. And then, you know, sometimes we actually do want some viscosity. Most of the time that might be in the completion or workover type space where let's say I just viscosify the brine and because it's thicker, it doesn't invade the formation as fast. And then sometimes it'll actually be for a spacer, like a displacement where I'll I'll viscosify the brine just to push whatever else was in the well out, maybe on a cement job, maybe just on a displacement to mud. And then going back to corrosion, think about, you know, anything to adjust the pH. It could be as simple as caustic soda or a little bit of lime. And then I guess kind of the last thing I could, I could really come up with off of, you know, my list was non-emulsifiers. So if you are drilling the production section and you're worried about the brine actually creating an emulsion with crude oil, you can add a surfactant that will limit that interaction. So there's a broad range of chemistry that you could throw in there, but most of the time you have a specific reason to do it. It's unlikely you're going to have seven or eight additives in a brine. I would say most of the time you're messing with the pH and you're seeking lubricity. Right. No, that's pretty simple and very effective. So brine is considered a water-based mud and with water-based muds, typically, you know, they're, they're relatively inexpensive compared to other drilling fluids. Now, of course you can get high performance water-based muds to where then you would try and reuse it or recycle it as much as you can. But with brines, Matt, talk a little bit about the reuse. Is this a, a system or a fluid that we would typically reuse or do operators at the end of it, just try and get rid of it and, you know, build a fresh batch on the next section or well? I would say, you know, the answer is it depends. You know, that's a sufficiently vague response. But if you think about a really expensive brine, you'd reuse that as much as you possibly can. You know, cesium formate is so expensive that you can't even buy it, you rent it. So you basically have to give give back whatever you didn't use. And there are elaborate processes to actually recondition that brine. So there's a lot of that. But if, if you think about interclear, you know, when you're drilling with that, you're always flocculating, treating the solids. It's a bit ironic, but solids control is essential in a clear brine fluid because you want so few present. And then if you do add some of these other products, there can even be elaborate processes to kind of break down and and shock out viscosifiers and other additives to get back as much of the brine as possible because some of it has so much cost. You know, you can also filter it and do a few other things as part of that reclamation process, but the really expensive brines, you know, it's if you're, especially in completions, it's fairly common to have rental agreements or buyback agreements and that sort of thing. Sort of like oil-based mud, right? Where you pay a reconditioning fee, you rent it, you send it back. 
if it's out of a certain spec, you pay to recondition it, that, those kinds of things. It's the same deal with, with the more exotic brines. So I think we will see more of this, even if it's cheaper to dispose of it just by way of, we can use less water, we can be a little greener. I could see a stronger interest in this. Yeah. And, and certainly I would imagine commodity prices and oil prices, you know, make it either more attractive or less attractive to use brines or move away from all these mud. And so there's a lot to consider when, when making the selection, but certainly, you know, as you've described, there's a lot of benefits and advantages, but also things to be considered. And Matt, really quick from an HSE perspective, you may have mentioned it initially, but what's the biggest thing to take away? And, and what would you say once you start moving to certain brines, do you really need to have your ducks in a row with regards to safety? Because I mean, sodium chloride, you can get that on you, everything else, but at what point do you really need to start saying, okay, whoa, like now we really need to put an emphasis on making sure we are aware of the safety measures? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, you know, you never know how anybody's going to react. And sometimes it can be a long time. So I would say any brine, you know, any brine you get on you, you obviously want to get off, right? Like we, I think we say, okay, well, one of these, I don't have to go to the hospital, but the other one, if I get it on me, I just probably shouldn't let it sit there and like irritate my skin until this becomes a real problem. So I, I just start with no matter what you want to make sure that you are getting, you know, cleaned up if you ever have any contact, regardless of the brine. But if you talk about some of the heavier brines where they really like water, the zinc bromides, the calcium bromides, some of the higher density formates, that sort of thing, they like water, right? And so if it gets on your skin, they're going to take water out of your skin and they're going to burn you. And so there are certain things, you know, there's added PPE, there's barrier creams. You probably don't want to wear leather boots. Well, you don't, it'll be your last time you wear leather boots the first time. <laughs> and so there's certain things like that, that you would, you would consider the other one that I think sometimes people overlook is the surface tension on these higher density brines is pretty high. So if you spill calcium bromide, we've had this happen in the lab before where someone spilled calcium bromide and you have to get everybody to move away and basically mop that area with water as best you can, because it's like walking on marbles. It's mm. not like stepping on a droplet of water that sort of collapses under the weight of your foot it's actually got enough surface tension that it could cause your foot to slip out from underneath you. And so, you know, if you're using those really exotic brines, it's very possible that you'd actually like on the rig floor, they'll be hosing it off constantly to dilute any of the high density brines to avoid anybody having a serious fall. Okay. So that's one that I think people sort of, you know, overlook. I think a lot of the skin contact and that sort of thing, most people are pretty well aware of it, or they've heard a story or they've been warned. So there's a lot to consider. And then on the environmental side, there's other things, right? You know, some of this stuff is as benign as can be. Some of this stuff, you know, you basically have to treat it like you're drilling with something hazardous. So, you know, while this is something on the drilling side, we don't deal with a lot. I think it's, it's going to be more common. And I think, you know, we just need to know what we're working with and that requires some education. But once you understand it, it's not a scary thing. Gotcha. Well, there's plenty of information out there on brine. So you type in brines or whatever type of brine you're working with into Google and there's a mountain of information. But, you know, again, if anyone out there has any questions or any topics that you'd like to dive deeper into or you'd like Matt or I to talk about further, please hit us up on LinkedIn. You can certainly email us at the flowlinepodcast at aesflues.com. 
Matt, any closing last words on this exciting topic of brine fluids? You know, it's salt and water. I think when people hear about some of these more exotic ones, and certainly when they see the price, they sort of lock up. But remember, these are, as we always say, they're tools in the toolbox. You have to think about your total cost of ownership. You know, what does it save me? What do I get? And sometimes the math works better than you think. And other times you're absolutely right. It's not worth it. So let's have the conversation and kind of understand all of our options by knowing what our problems are and and be aware that, I mean, there's a lot of clear brines out there and there's some, a lot of different ways to use them. Awesome. Well, everyone out there, please, if you could continue to support the show by leaving a review. Also, if you'd like to share it with any other mud engineers or anyone in the drilling or drilling fluid world, there's, you know, the feedback we've gotten recently is, is outstanding. So for everyone out there who continues to listen and support the show, you know, much appreciated and follow us on LinkedIn. You know, it's not just a bunch of pictures and Hey, look who we are, but there's a lot of good valuable information that gets put out there by Matt and his team, our tech department, our support group. They're constantly working to provide solid information to the audience. And and so if you could certainly follow us on LinkedIn and other forms of social media as well, I think we've got an Instagram page now. Adelaide Nordier has done a great job of expanding our social media presence. So big shout out to her, but everyone's just working as hard as they possibly can to hopefully provide good information and content to our audience and people who have supported us from the beginning. So again, just, I can't say it enough, you know, for myself and on behalf of AES Drilling Foods, we appreciate everyone listening and Matt, other than that, that's, a, that's about it for me. Take care, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.